This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. This is 15-Minute History, a podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Henry Winsack, graduate student of history here at UT and assistant editor at Not Even Past. And today I'm speaking with Robert Olwell, a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin, who specializes in the British Atlantic world of the 18th century and the early American South. Welcome, Professor Olwell. Thank you. Glad to be here. Between roughly 1754 and 1763, Great Britain, France, and a collection of French-allied Native American tribes fought a brutal war over trading rights in colonial North America. This war, which is alternatively called the French and Indian War and the Seven Years' War, resulted in a British victory and a large acquisition of French territory across the eastern half of North America. So faced with the question of how British colonists would settle all this newly acquired land, King George III issued the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which attempted to reorganize the legal boundaries of colonial America as well as the lives of its inhabitants. And as we'll find out, it had some interesting effects on the history of colonial America. So, Professor Orwell, could you briefly just talk about the proclamation itself? What are its terms, and what is it trying to accomplish? Okay, well, the proclamation is written, really, to decide what to do with this cession of land, as you said, that was gained from the French by the Treaty of Paris, which was signed in February of 1763. So, in some ways, it's just uh, imperial housekeeping, I guess you could say. They need to organize the new colonies, uh, Quebec which had been French Canada, and then in the south, the Floridas, which had been Spanish territory before. And so that's its first goal. It starts by talking about the boundaries of those colonies, the appointment of governors, land settlement. Um, But the other problem, I guess, the British have to deal with is this other session of land they gained from the French, which the French would have called Louisiana Territory, that is the Mississippi River Valley, westward to the Mississippi River. Uh, The French had, uh, in February of 1763, given the other half, that is the Mississippi Valley west of the Mississippi, to the Spanish. So we're dealing with this area between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River, which is, as you say, the home of these Native American groups that had traditionally been allied with either the French in the north or the Spanish in the south, and who are now, by virtue of the treaty, under British authority. And one of the most important aspects of this proclamation was the proclamation line that it established. Uh, How did that proclamation line change Great Britain's colonial relationship with America, both in terms of the colonists living there and the land itself? Well, uh, certainly if you're a colonial American that is living in what we think of as the the 13 colonies, the thing that would have piqued your interest uh, once you got past the boundaries of Florida and Quebec was this, as you say, this line that the proclamation draws along what is called the height of land, that is the watershed between the Atlantic and the Mississippi Valley which cuts off, uh, I guess you'd say, traditional westward boundaries of the colonies. Most of the colonies had been organized and settled in the 17th century and had vague, if any, westward limits. often said something like sea to sea, so potentially would go westward to the Pacific Ocean, but certainly would go westward at least to the Mississippi. But now the proclamation line has drawn this, this new boundary, limiting... Uh, the the seaboard colonies to the uh, to the east side of the Appalachian Mountains, that would have been new and uh, reserving, as it says, everything to the west of of that line uh, to the Indians, hmm. which are now described as our subjects by the king. So there's this new idea that the Indians who had been 
Traditionally, uh, the enemies, or uh, allies with the French and, and opposed to the British colonists, are now are being you know, uh, treated as subjects by the king and given this territory, uh, that these parts of which you could say had been taken from what the colonists had thought of as their own. And it also strictly limits, you know, there shall be no settlement west of that line without, you know, the, the approval of the, of the British government in London, that the, the authority to, to grant lands in that territory is taken away from the colonial governments and from colonial governors. So there's this new um, centralization, let's say, of imperial administration that uh, colonists would have been surprised by and, and unhappy with. Yeah, can you expand upon that a little bit? How did American colonists respond to this imposition of colonial power and the limiting of settlements on Western lands? Well, a lot of the colonists uh, before, during, and immediately after the Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War, had been uh, looking forward to settling, or speculating more likely, in lands on the Ohio River Valley, what's now Kentucky and southern Ohio, uh, particularly Virginians, and of course the proclamation line made that impossible. I mean, it's not, of course, practically possible for the British to stop an individual settler from walking across this, you know, imaginary line or at least this hypothetical line on the crest of the mountains. So it's they're not going to stop squatters from moving in. But what it does stop effectively is anybody gaining legal title. To land, So if you're a, a George Washington, he doesn't want to move to Kentucky. He would like to get land grants in Kentucky that he could then sell. He wants to speculate in Kentucky lands, and this is going to put a stop to that. This, he can gain no title to that land, so uh, he can't speculate. So that's really the, the, where it pinches the most for uh, prominent colonials. Washington himself says he just uh, can't believe that it's going to stick. He mm. says, I, I can't see this, but as a temporary thing to quiet the Indians, and, you know, eventually... And it's true that if you read the proclamation, it's they're not saying anything about perpetuity. This isn't Indian land forever. It's simply reserved to the crown, in a sense, for the use of the Indians. Mm. And certainly the prospect is that at some future date, at the discretion of uh, the crown, this land may be granted in, in one form or another. So in some ways, it's, it's taking uh, land from the colonists and holding it to the crown... Right, and the Indians are are being sort of wards of the crown, as it were. They're being allowed to live there, hmm. but they're not being given title to that land in any way. Yeah, you mentioned the impacts on the Native American tribesmen who are residing in America. Can you talk more specifically about the kind of role the proclamation envisions for Native Americans now who are within the British Empire? Well, as I said, with a few exceptions, I mean, uh, the Iroquois and uh, the Catawba, most of the Native American groups in this in this region were uh, traditionally allied to the French and in the South to the Spanish or had played a, often a kind of middle game, playing the sides against each other. Um, so when they learn, that is when the Native Americans learn the terms of the Treaty of Paris, that is that the, their lands had been granted by the French to the British at this conference on the other side of the ocean that they had no part in, uh, they're shocked. This, and, and, and militarily, the Native Americans had not been defeated in the Seven Years' War, so they, they just don't understand how, either by right of conquest or any other way, that they could be dispossessed in that way. So they're, they're very hostile to this notion that the British have you know, authority over them. And 
let's say the British, they're mostly military men who are on the scene in, in 1760, 61, 62, uh, are usually pretty ham-fisted about trying to impose you know, the British authority upon the Indians, often restricting their access to trade, you know, sort of new, you know, there's a new new ruler in town, you're going to have to listen to us. So there's a great deal of resentment and, and anger and fear among Native American groups. And this explodes in the spring of 1763 uh, with uh, an Indian, it's hard to avoid phrases like rebellion or uprising, mm. which of course is the, Brit- the British view. The Indians don't see themselves as rebellious because they don't see themselves as subject. Right. Uh, but there's violence in the interior here and on the frontier, what's called Pontiac's Rebellion in, in history. It's actually tempting because of the coincidence to see the proclamation line as a response to that. But in fact, you know, given the time travel for news to cross the ocean, the proclamation, the, its terms are being drawn up more or less coincidental with the violence in the, in the Americas. Mm. But in a way, however coincidentally, they're serving the proclamation is trying to address this native disquiet, trying to calm the natives, trying to assert British authority by, in a sense, protecting the natives from colonial encroachment, um, reassuring them that they can uh, enjoy their lands and will be protected by the crown from, you know, from this fear of colonial settlement. It's interesting that in a thing I was reading about, uh, there's some interest in exploring this new region that's just been granted. And John Bartram, who's a Pennsylvania Quaker, he's a naturalist. He very much likes to, wants to get out there into the Mississippi and Florida, but he's very worried that the Indians will be, you know, violent. He said mm-hmm. that in, Indians will view naturalists or surveyors or anybody coming from uh, the eastern seaboard into their lands as trespassers, but also as a kind of, you know, entering wedge, you know, where surveyors come, where naturalists come, settlers will follow. So so that notion of, of you know, reassuring the Indians that their lands are not going to be taken was a, was a, a potent one at the time. And how successful was the proclamation line in kind of ensuring tranquility between Native American and British colonial lands? Well, it doesn't last, of course, because the imperial crisis gets cooking it's interesting if you read some British writing around the time of the proclamation, there's several different imperatives at work. One is the, to calm the natives in the interior. And this is the British trying to decide how to govern non-English subject peoples. They're going to be playing the same game with you know Indians in South Asia, more or less at the same time. So there's a goal of, of pacifying the Indians, but then bringing them under, under government. That's something they, they, they push in the next year in 1764. But there's also in Britain um, a, a disquiet, let's say, already about the rate of colonial, that is British colonial growth, um, and a desire to, to limit it. The fear is that colonists who get west of the mountains will, will pass out of British control in a way. Maybe we should keep them on the east side. There's also almost like um, a demographic uh, hydrology, this notion that if they build a dam for settlement along the crest of the mountains, the the burgeoning colonial population will have to flow north and south. Hmm. And they do want uh, Anglos, let's say, to get into Canada, right? They don't like the idea of Quebec being uh, populated mostly by French Canadian Catholics. They'd like to get more Anglos to move there. They also, of course, want the Floridas to be populated. They're largely empty. So in some ways, the, the proclamation line serves that other function. If we if we stop settlement from going west, it'll have to go north and south, and that, that'll serve these other purposes. So there's multiple different mm. agendas being addressed in that document. 
You just alluded to the imperial crisis that ensues after the proclamation line is established. Um, And in a lot of narratives of the American Revolution, the proclamation is cited as yet another indignity that the colonists had to endure and another cause for the revolution. Um, Do do you find that narrative persuasive? It's sort of um, an after-the-fact type logic. That is, we know there's going to be an American Revolution, and then we naturally look backward to find its, its origins. And that leads us to 1763, and people point to the the Treaty of Paris and say it was the British decision to keep Canada. That was the first you know, domino. And then also the proclamation, same year. If the revolution had not happened, um, I don't think these documents would be given, obviously, the weight that they have. Um, and I don't think I can. you can see them as certainly sufficient in themselves to have caused the revolution. It, I think at most what you can say about the proclamation of 1763 is that it is the first evidence of a new imperative by the the British government to take, to behave imperially, let's say, to take control of the empire, to try to organize it and and run it from the center, right? That this is something that shouldn't be managed by the colonists themselves. This land should be managed uh, by the central government, by by the government in London, um, and of course, that imperative is going to, um, you know, lead to other steps. Um, you know, the Sugar Act in the next year, the Stamp Act in 1765, and so if you see the American Revolution as being caused by that British project of centralizing the empire, then you can look at the Proclamation as the first step on that road. But like I say, by itself, at the time, colonists, of course, they didn't like it. They didn't expect it to last. But um, it's only in retrospect that they look back at it and say, aha, this was the moment when you could see this uh, desire to control, or they would have said, I guess, enslave us began. Right. So I suppose a good concluding question for a conversation is a simple one. What is the significance of the Royal Proclamation of 1763 in American history? It, it, well, it, it, I think it plays into different. Um, uh, significance is always a difficult question. It's a... Uh, it speaks to, as I say, to British history and this British desire to control. It's also clearly a very important document in Native American history. That is, this this recognition by the British of the uh, Native Americans as as subject peoples who, in some ways, are possessed of um, I don't want to say rights, but at least need to be considered, have some claim to territory, have some claim to the protection of the king, uh, is significant. That's something I think new for, from the British, at least. As I say, this imposition of imperial authority upon the colonists is also a, a new thing. So it it really does uh, signify a kind of change, I guess, a change in the wind uh, that things are going to be different for all three of those peoples in the in the in the future, and the end of this previous colonial system. Great. Well, Professor Robert Orwell, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thanks. This has been another episode of Fifteen Minute History, and we'll see you next time. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15minutehistory. That's the numerals 15minutehistory. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.